Let's open our Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, we are seeking to learn the Word of God. Preaching is not the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God. Galatians is one of the epistles God's given us, where the Apostle Paul had to defend himself from those who despised him and his doctrine, because it set aside the old covenant that so many took so much pride in. It is interesting that in the last week, I have encountered my first true Judaizer and have engaged in an email debate with this man. I do not know where he lives. He wants to argue with me out of his Tanakh. I call it his Hanukkah Bible. From the Hebrew. And he hates Paul. He hates Paul. He calls him ungodly Paul. And all these Pauline Christians that he doesn't like. I like writing such a man about what happened to all of his religious, social, and political institutions in 70 A.D. I like writing to such a man and saying, take your Masoretic Hebrew text and turn to 2 Samuel 21.19 and see who killed Goliath. They love their Masoretes who kept the Hebrew text But it's got the same error in it about Goliath as the modern Bible versions do. And so last night I got to go to bed on this Judaizing, Hebrew-worshipping, Christian-hating, Pauline-hating man as he argued that Goliath of Gath was the father of Goliath the Gittite. So David killed... Goliath of Gath, and Elhanan killed Goliath the Gittite. What is a Gittite? Someone from Gath. So Goliath the Gittite and Goliath of Gath are the very same person. And when both of them are described as having a spear, the shaft of which was like a weaver's beam, you have a unique identifier for one and the same person. I said, your Masoretes in 2 Samuel 21 got tired. And he fell asleep and left out three words. The brother of. Sorry. You could have corrected it if you would have gone to 1 Chronicles 20 and verse 5. Because in that place it tells us that Elhanan killed Lamai, the brother of Goliath. It gives us his name. Now, that was not wasted time that I just spent with you. I just reminded some of you that when you run into someone that's using another Bible version, and I don't care if it's in Hebrew, you can go to 2 Samuel 21.19 and say, Who killed Goliath in your Bible? Because they have Elhanan killing Goliath in their Bible. Because they've lost three words, the brother of that our translators put in by the providence of God, and they told us why and how they put them in from 1 Chronicles 20 and verse 5. Precious. But it's the first man I've ever run into that just wanted to put down in print that he hated Paul. You know, so I closed out this morning by telling him, a servant of Jesus of Nazareth, according to the Apostle Paul, a follower of Jesus of Nazareth according to Paul. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, Because Paul said, Be ye followers of me as I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I hope you love our beloved brother Paul that God used to give us these epistles. The book of Galatians. And I'm, I repeat myself a little bit because I want everyone in here, including our children, to remember why we have this epistle. Galatia was a province in what we now call Turkey. And in that province called Galatia, there were several churches. The first two verses of this epistle tell us that there, was a, there were several churches there that Paul was writing. Paul had gone and preached to these people 
that the fulfillment of the Old Testament was all found in Jesus Christ. He had died on the cross to save them from their sins. He was the coming judge of the world. They believed that gospel message, were baptized, and formed into churches. But then false teachers had come out of Jerusalem to teach that Jesus wasn't enough to be saved. You needed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses as well in order to be saved. And so these poor churches and these poor Gentiles in these churches, Gentiles like you and me, were having their faith overthrown by these false teachers out of Jerusalem. So Paul writes this epistle to get them back to the truth about Jesus Christ, that circumcision doesn't have anything to do with being saved. Chapter 1, he condemns their gospel, and he condemns this false gospel, and anyone that might preach it, even if it were to be him or an angel from heaven. And he begins to give a timeline of his conversion. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, he shows his apostolic authority and that all the apostles, especially the pillars in Jerusalem, had endorsed him and his gospel. And then he shows that he had even rebuked Peter on this matter and shows his arguments as we come through chapter 2 when he rebuked Peter for Peter's hypocrisy with the Judaizers. In chapter 3, he taught that the true seed of Abraham is the Lord Jesus Christ and the blessing that was to be upon Abraham was to affect all nations and that blessing was justification by Jesus Christ. Not national blessing, but spiritual blessing of justification. Chapter 4, that we dealt with last Sunday, he shows the purpose of the law was just to bring them to Christ. But Christ had come, they were adopted by Him, there was no reason to go back to the law, and that believers in Jesus Christ were like Isaac, the son of promise. And those that went back to Jerusalem-type worship were like Ishmael, the son of the bondwoman. And what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. So even in Paul's day, he considered the worship being done in Jerusalem to be bondage worship that was to be compared to Hagar and Ishmael. And doesn't that ring true with the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to the woman of Samaria? Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when they shall neither in this mountain of yours, where you think God's to be worshipped, nor in Jerusalem worship Him. Because we worship in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus Christ had already set the stage for what Paul is teaching here. We seek a city that is to come, as Hebrews 13, 14 tells us. Not the Jerusalem that even was in Paul's day. And the Jerusalem that is in our day is not even a third cousin to the Jerusalem that was in Paul's day. There isn't a thing to do with God in the city of Jerusalem today. At least in Paul's day, they had God's temple. They had God's word. They had God's priests. They had God's sacrifices. But even with all of that, Paul would say, Jerusalem that now is, is in bondage with all her children. But the Jerusalem which is above, the heavenly, spiritual kingdom of Jesus Christ, which is the mother of us all, is entirely free. So we come to chapter 5. Verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Based on that freedom that Jesus Christ purchased for us, and that freedom is, no one can ever tell you that you have to do something in order to be saved. Because Jesus Christ saved us by Himself. And these Judaizers that had come across the Mediterranean Sea to teach the Galatians they had to be circumcised and keep Moses' law to be saved, that was a yoke of bondage that took away the liberty. And these Galatian saints were to reject those teachers and consider them accursed, as the first chapter told us. Stand fast. Now, when we use the word fast... We either mean you're not eating, or we mean you're moving quickly. But when the Bible uses the word fast in a situation like this, it doesn't mean moving quickly. It means being fastened. 
So when it says stand fast, it means stand in one place, being fastened to that one place, and don't move. And so Paul tells these Galatians, you take that gospel that I've preached to you and that I've just re-explained to you in these first four chapters and you stand with it and don't move. And so much of the Bible, the New Testament is committed to us being fastened to what we have been taught and not moving. When God shows us something by overwhelming evidence, we will move, but we will not move before then. It is an unstable man that moves. It is a heretic that moves. It is someone contrary to the religion of Christ that moves. We're going to stand still. We're going to be fastened to what we've been given. We ask the Lord to show us things we may not see. And if He shows them to us, we'll move. But He's going to have to show them to us with overwhelming evidence. Not competing evidence. I'll blow competing evidence to smithereens and sweep it out the back door. It must be overwhelming evidence because that's the only way you can be convinced to leave a position that you have understood to be truth till that point in time. And we've done it before, and we'll do it again by the grace of God if He reveals more to us. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. What Paul calls the Old Testament is the yoke of bondage. Holding your fingers here, look at Acts 15. Look at Acts 15 and listen to Peter's words confirm our brother Paul. Paul may have had to rebuke Peter in Galatians chapter 2, and he did so, and he needed to do so. But for the most part, other than a couple of exceptions, Peter was a great apostle in his own right and loved the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the one that had the courage to come down and to go into the house of Cornelius and preach the gospel to him, even though he knew he was going to get in trouble with the Jews on that point. And he went to Jerusalem and defended what he had done. And he baptized those converts. Acts chapter 15. Listen to Peter when he's standing in the council of Jerusalem. In the middle of verse 7, I'll take up with his words. Men and brethren... Ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as He did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they. There's that yoke of bondage. In verse 10, Peter said, Why are you tempting God? Why are you challenging God and trying to override what He's done, since He's already given the Holy Spirit to these converted Gentiles that I baptized, why do you want to send them back to the law of Moses? That's a yoke that our fathers couldn't bear. And we couldn't bear it. It was too much even for us Jews. Why do you want to require it of the Gentiles? And so back to Galatians 5.1. This is the yoke of bondage. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us the liberty of the gospel of Christ. The liberty is... No man can require something of us. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. We've been saved from that and we're not going to move from it. We will not frustrate the grace of God as 2.21 describes by adding something to the finished work of Jesus Christ. That frustrates God's grace because it steals from grace. It ruins grace. Grace and works do not fit together. They're like oil and water. You can't mix them. They're contrary the one to the other. And so Paul appeals to them, Brethren, stand fast. Listen, the whole New Testament teaches about false teachers. From beginning to end, there's always going to be false teachers. Men are going to arise in congregations and speak foolish things based on a tiny bit of study that they like to lead men away after themselves. Teachers will arise to try the same thing. 
Paul warned, Jesus warned about false teachers. Paul said in Acts chapter 20 when he had to warn the elders of Ephesus, I know that they're going to arise out of you. While he looked at a group of elders, he said they're going to arise out of you to lead men astray after themselves. They don't love the truth. They love themselves. And so we must look at this verse and remember that we need to stand fast. And throughout the Bible, we're to encourage one another to hold fast. Fastened in your hand. Holding it. Hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. We don't waver. If we're ever going to change, we're not going to waver about it. We're going to change whatever the Lord shows us. But we're not going to waver in the meantime. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Don't go back to line yourself up with Hagar and Ishmael. Stay free with Sarah and Isaac. Verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Paul here invokes his apostolic authority. And he says, Behold, I, Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles, the man who worked miracles among you, the man you know that had the Spirit of God with him, I, Paul, say to you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Now, let's think about those words. There are brothers in this assembly, many of them, that are circumcised. Does that mean Christ is of no profit to you? No, there's an elliptical understanding here. Those of you that are circumcised in order to be saved, Christ shall become of no effect unto you. Because if you set circumcision up as a condition for salvation, then it undoes the work of Christ. Because Jesus Christ saved by Himself. And if you're going to add circumcision in order to be saved, then to be consistent... With the law, you've got to add everything else. Which brings us to the third verse. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. And if you're a debtor to do the whole law, which you cannot do, then you're condemned. If you're condemned, Jesus didn't accomplish a thing on the cross. In your doctrine of salvation... In verse 2, when it says, Christ shall profit you nothing, that doesn't mean if some child of God that was converted and baptized by Paul, if he believed those Jewish teachers and got, he was a Gentile and he got circumcised in order to add to the work of Christ, that does not mean he's going to hell. It means that he ought to stop preaching Jesus Christ altogether Because Jesus no longer has a place in his theology. Because once he adds circumcision, he needs to add, add, once he adds circumcision, he needs to add everything else. And once he adds everything else, it leaves him condemned, and Christ didn't accomplish a thing. This is very important that you understand how God wrote his word. Verse 2 is not saying that Jesus Christ will not profit you in the day of judgment when you stand before him. Jesus Christ is of no further profit in your theology. You've made all that He did of no value. Verse 3, For I testify again. The word again is there because of chapter 3, verses 10 and 12. Look over there and see that Paul has already taught, if you're going to keep any of Moses' law, you better keep all of Moses' law. 3.10 For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And verse 12, And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. How many of them? All of them. If you're going to keep one commandment of the law for salvation, you have to keep all the commandments of the law for salvation, because if you break the law in one point, you're guilty of the whole law. James 2.10. 
And so Paul sticks that in again. And see, he wouldn't get marked by an English teacher as being redundant because he put the word again in there. Every word of God is pure. I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Verse 4. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Ye are fallen from grace. And here goes Alexander Campbell's Church of Christ. Whoa! Off they go. They've got Galatians 5.4. Ye are fallen from grace. You can lose your salvation. Haven't you ever read Galatians 5.4? These Baptists that preach eternal security, they've never looked at their Bibles. Because look at Galatians 5.4. It says you can fall from grace. It says that Galatians had fallen from grace. We're the only ones that stick to the Scriptures. Where the Scriptures speak, we speak. I'm quoting them. Where the Scriptures speak, we speak. Where the Scriptures are silent, we're silent. Galatians 5.4 has spoken. You can lose your salvation. And you know, they're simple saints. And the sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ sitting in some of those churches... And they look down at Galatians 5, 4, and it says you're fallen from grace. And guess what? They would be tempted to believe what they had just heard from that man. And he could overthrow their faith that Jesus Christ had secured their salvation once and for all, and they could never be plucked out of his hands. And there is nothing in heaven or in earth or in hell that can separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus their Lord. And they lose that confidence because of this verse. Galatians 5, 4. Are you looking at it? It says, ye are fallen from grace. I love this text. It shows us how to read the Bible. In the same verse, it says, whosoever of you are justified by the law. So everyone's going to heaven in Galatians 5, 4. Some are going there because they were justified by the law. And the others are getting there by grace. Because it says, Whosoever of you are justified by the law. Is anyone justified by the law? No, it's impossible. 2.16 has already said, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. But it says, Whosoever of you are justified by the law. So in what sense are they justified by the law? In their heads. They're justified by the law. In their pulpits, they're justified by the law. In their doctrinal system of salvation, they think they're justified by the law. And whoever thinks, preaches, or believes that they are justified by the law, they have fallen from the right understanding of grace. They have fallen from the doctrine of grace. They have fallen from the truth of grace. And that is what Galatians 5.4 means. And a child of God can do this easily. And many have done it. Let me tell you this. Most have done it. The truth is rare. The full truth of God's grace is rare. Do you know how many people are in churches this morning that believe in some version of frustrated grace? Many. Many. That is why it is so important for you to pray for your pastor. That is why it is so important that pastor better study. That's why it is so important that we better stick with the Word of God and not have storytelling on Sunday mornings. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. The key is that middle clause. We know that no one is justified by the law. We know that's only their thinking So that clause number one and clause number three are both in their thinking as well. Or in their doctrine of salvation. If you have added the law for justification to your doctrinal system, then your doctrinal system has made the work of Christ of no effect. Your doctrinal system has thrown grace out the back door. You're fallen from grace. That's what Galatians 5.4 means, brethren. That is how Galatians 5.4 fits the rest of the New Testament. If we take Galatians 5.4, pull it out of its context, ignore the middle clause, 
then we'll try to overthrow the rest of the Bible and take away the eternal security that all of God's elect have by God's predestinating purpose in Jesus Christ. Not one that Jesus Christ died for will be lost. He guaranteed that on His own integrity and His own name and the name of God. The Lord knoweth them that are His. Thank You, Lord. Thank You, Lord, for the truth. Does anyone in here know Hebrews 2.13? Behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Do you think Jesus Christ is going to get there and say, Behold, I and the children which have not fallen from grace? It's behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Some of you quizzers are responsible for Hebrews 2. This audience is friendlier than the one yesterday. Galatians 5.4 Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. If you skim read the Bible, you're in trouble. If you skim read the Bible, you're going to fall from grace. If you read the Bible carefully and think about that middle clause, you're going to know that isn't real falling from grace any more than it's really being justified by the law. That's just in their heads. Verse 5. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Now, he's making a contrast here. Those people in Galatians, in verse 4, that thought they might be justified by the law, he says, you're fallen from grace. But he comes to verse 5 and he says, For we, as opposed to them, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Our religion is based on these things. God has promised everlasting righteousness for His elect. We believe that by faith. Jesus Christ earned it for us, and we are just in expectant waiting for it. We are going to stand before God one day, clothed in His perfect righteousness. We have the hope of that. And brethren, hope in the Bible is not a, I think so, it might be, it could possibly happen. Hope in the Bible is patiently waiting for something. Romans 8 defines the word hope for us. I'm not giving you the Oxford English Dictionary. I'm giving you the Dictionary of the Holy Spirit by comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Romans chapter 8 says, if we hope for something, then do we with patience wait for it. We know it's coming. And Paul said here, we're not trying to earn our salvation. We have the Spirit of God given to us. He testifies in our heart that we're His children. We believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to fulfill the promises that God made and that when we stand before Him, we'll be clothed in His perfect righteousness and we are patiently waiting for that to happen. That is where Christians stand. These Judaizers were trying to overthrow that simple religion. Now, I like the simple religion of 5-5. Do you? God promised everlasting righteousness. God will clothe me. I believe that promise. I believe that promise as much as as Abraham believed that his seed would be as multitudinous as the stars of heaven. I believe it. I don't stagger at the promise of God through unbelief. But I, I hope I'm strong in faith. I don't even like to say it about myself, but are you strong in faith? Giving glory to God? You're hoping. Okay, we're patiently waiting for it. Because God's going to do it. God gives us the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is faith and hope. God gives us the Spirit, which gives us faith and hope to lay hold of a promise that God has made that was earned by the Lord Jesus Christ, who kept every commandment of the law perfectly. I was circumcised in Christ, if you want to emphasize circumcision, because Jesus was circumcised. I have everything. And I'm going to stand complete before Him. We don't need those Judaizers. We don't need the law. We have the freedom of Christ. And verse 5, though it is short, is wonderful. That's where Paul stood, and that's where he was hoping the Galatian churches would stand, and I hope that's where we stand this morning. We, through the Spirit... Wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. We know how that righteousness was secured, don't we? By the Lord Jesus Christ. 
we know how it was dedicated to certain members of Adam's race, don't we? By the predestinating purpose of God and His promise that out of every nation, tribe, tongue, and family, He would justify sinners through Jesus Christ. And we believe it and we wait for it by the power of the Spirit of God. The Gospel is in one little sentence. We don't need circumcision and go home and eat pepperoni pizza tonight. It's not going to send you to hell. Verse 6. Oh, I love Paul's getting to the end of his arguments. He's about to get practical. He's, he's, he's ending his arguments against the Judaizers. He's got a few nice things to say to them before he ends. But verse 6. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. It's because of that verse that the word faith in verse 5 I take to be our faith in Christ because of verse 6, because that is our faith in verse 6. He's just explaining and defining and describing that faith a little bit more, that it's a faith that works. But this circumcision, Paul's upset. Circumcision doesn't mean a thing about Christ. If you add circumcision to getting saved, you've made Christ of none effect. We've already had these words. He's upset. I'll tell you one thing about the Apostle Paul. There was one thing he could never compromise. Jesus Christ had to be exalted. Jesus Christ had to be lifted as high as possible. And he's going to get very angry here in a few verses and cut loose on these false teachers. And there's a reason why. He is going to lift up his Lord and Master and Savior, Jesus Christ. And circumcision doesn't have a thing to do with salvation by Jesus Christ. Do you know how he argued in Romans chapter 4? You Romans, when God made promise to Abraham, and Abraham believed God's promise, and it was counted to him for righteousness, was he circumcised or uncircumcised? Uncircumcised. And he tears them apart in Romans chapter 4. Your father Abraham, that you put so much stock in, had already been justified by God before he got circumcised. And he's the father of the faithful, whether they be circumcised or not circumcised. To think, Lord, give me discretion in my speech. To think that minor surgery could get you to heaven in addition to the work of Christ is insanity. It shows a total lack of understanding about the law of God, the nature of sin, and the holiness of our God. Do you know what Paul calls these people in Philippians chapter 3? Beware of the the concision. Circumcision is cutting in a circle. Concision is just cutting it off. Beware of the concision. Body mutilators. Because Paul is so upset about taking that act and making it necessary for salvation. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision. It doesn't matter one whit to God whether you're circumcised or not when it comes to standing in His righteousness. That's why He said in verse 4, Christ has become of no effect unto you. That's why He said in verse 2, Christ shall profit you nothing. If you pull circumcision out of the law of Moses and make it necessary for justification, all of a sudden Jesus' death has no value. You can't mix those two things. But faith, which worketh by love. Now, do you want something? Do you want something to know that you're one of God's justified elect? Do you want to know that you're going to have, that you have the hope of righteousness? It's faith, which worketh by love. What a wonderful expression. Faith. I believe God that worketh by love. I love my brethren. If you have faith in God, and love and serve your brethren, you are the righteous, elect, and justified saints of God. It's not circumcision. The Jews loved circumcision. They knew they had a special right that made them different from all other nations, except some Ishmaelites, because uh, did, did Abraham circumcise Ishmael? Yes, he did. But most other Gentile nations did not practice circumcision And so the Jews 
looked very different. And they loved that flesh. Every Gentile they could get to go have surgery, every Gentile they could get to go have that surgery, they got excited about it because they'd taken a Gentile and made him look like them. They loved it. Before we can get out of this epistle, you're going to, see, you're going to hear about glorying in their flesh, and that's exactly what it means. That they got a Gentile to convert to their religion, and converting to their religion was more than coming to the altar. It was stepping in the back room for a minute and being sore for a week. Circumcision availeth nothing, availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith, which worketh by love. Brethren, the real evidence of salvation is faith that works by love. Do you remember? It was only a few weeks ago I preached from Second Peter chapter 1, where it says that we obtained like precious faith through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God gave us faith through the righteousness of Jesus Christ But we were to do something with that faith. We were to add, add to our faith. Virtue, knowledge, godliness, temperance, patience, brotherly love, and charity. There's that faith that worketh by love. It's easy to say, I believe in God. You know, we ask people, do you believe there's a God in heaven? Almost everyone will say yes. But real faith works. Real faith does something. It takes that knowledge of God and adds those things that I preached to you from 2 Peter chapter 1. It goes out and loves the brethren. It's it's easy to love a God you haven't met. It's a little harder to love all these sinners that are lined up in the pews around you. But it's loving sinners in the pews around you that prove you truly love God. And it's that faith that worketh by love that's the evidence that we are a secret society of God's elect justified by the work of Jesus Christ in this world. It's not a secret society of those that look a little different when they drop their trousers. Forgive me if you can't handle my language. It happens throughout the Bible. Do you know what Jacob and his sons said to the inhabitants of Sychor in order for them to have Dinah? You want our sis, you want our daughter? Well, we got something for you to do. You're going to convert to our religion. And that wasn't inviting Jesus into their heart. And it wasn't being baptized in an underground baptistry like the Mormons. It was circumcision. They gloried in that flesh. They knew that God had given it to them. They had the scriptures. But see, even when God gives you something, you better leave it in its proper place. God gave Moses a brass serpent. But I find men hundreds of years later still holding on to that like some sacred sacred relic. When God gave circumcision, it was just a token of the old covenant, a token of the promise to Abraham. Not the old covenant yet, it was a token of the promise to Abraham. A token of the faith that he had. And he got that. He had a faith first. Circumcision second. And so here Paul is blasting this corruption of Jesus Christ that added circumcision. See, the the, the epistle of Galatians is about circumcision. We're not done with it yet before we can get out of the epistle. Even though he's going to get practical here, he's going to come back and mention it again in verses 12 and 13. Look at verse 15 of chapter 6 as he's closing out. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Does that sound like this verse? He's repeating himself because these people were so hung up on circumcision. But faith which worketh by love. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It's not far away. To the right a few pages, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Faith. Faith which worketh by love. Not just faith. Because devils believe that there is a God. But devils don't love. They're full of hatred and destruction. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. 
remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. You know, everyone wants to know, am I one of God's elect? Believe in God and love your brother. Faith which worketh by love. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 7. Ye did run well. When I came and preached in Galatia the first time, you heard the gospel. You searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. You received it with all readiness of mind. You believed it and you were baptized. You did run well. You were running your Christian race well. You started off at a good pace. You were zealous. You were going to finish your course. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? Now that's a rhetorical question that uh, they should know the answer. That if Paul was there representing God and Jesus Christ and had preached them one doctrine of salvation and they had started out well and now they were believing and living something else, who had persuaded them to quit their race? Who had persuaded them to walk off the racetrack? What's the answer? The devil. And those that he that, that represented him, the false teachers out of Jerusalem. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? Who has led you astray? There are false teachers in your churches of Galatia, and you should be looking around right now. Can you imagine them? Just think. What if this apostle, this epistle, this epistle is being read out loud? And as Paul gets going, the Galatian faithful are shouting, Amen. Amen! Because Brother Paul has come to defend the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Amens are getting a little bit louder as we get into chapter 5. And then it says, Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? <laughs> and there's three false teachers sitting up there in the deacon's bench. And the crowd's getting pretty excited about what Paul's writing. Paul's nailing them down right here. Who did it? And everyone in there is thinking, those three did it! Those three up there came here out of Jerusalem and tried to corrupt what we were taught by Paul. Do you ever read the Bible? Do you read the Bible like this thing was read? This thing was read in the churches of Galatia. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? You all started out well when I was there. Who's got you messed up and off course now? <clears throat> Amen. It was false teachers and they operate under the influence of the devil. When I go into 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I find there another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit, and I read that chapter, I find out that those false teachers are the ministers of Jesus, uh, the ministers of the devil. They appear to be angels of light. They appear to be ministers of righteousness. But in fact, they are emissaries of the devil. Remember, Jesus said, Take heed how ye hear. When the gospel is preached to you, if it falls by the wayside, who comes and snatches it away so that you cannot hear, believe, and be saved? The devil does. The devil comes and snatches the word away. The devil is against you running your race well. The devil doesn't want you believing by faith and working by love. He wants to corrupt your life and leave you without confidence, assurance, and a victorious Christian life. He can't take away your salvation, and he knows that. But he can certainly ruin your life so that you're a dysfunctional saint, not giving glory to Jesus Christ. And if all the churches of Jesus Christ were to become Judaizing churches, and which makes Jesus Christ of none effect, the devil would have been very successful, wouldn't he have? Because it would have made Jesus Christ of none effect. It's important what we believe. And it's important how we live. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. That tips us off right there. Him that calleth you is God. Verse 6 of chapter 1. 
The one that called you is God. But now you're being moved away by someone else, another spirit, and it's the spirit of darkness, the devil himself. Verse 9, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Leaven is yeast. All you have to do is put a little tiny bit of yeast in many pounds of wheat or other flour and water. And that little bit of yeast will cause that whole large amount of water and flour to rise. It infects the whole thing. What was once maybe a lump this big will swell and fill pans and overflow. Those of you who worked in some of the restaurants we had in the past, you all know that if you left it too long, it would just keep growing and get us in deep trouble. We'd have to clean out proofers and floors and prep tables and ovens and everything because we let that yeast in there too long without getting it baked to stop its activity. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. A little false doctrine ruins the church. A little bit of addition to the work of Christ ruins the gospel. We don't add anything. Lord, help us keep it pure. Help us keep it pure and simple. We don't want to frustrate Your grace, nor do we want any leaven infecting it at all. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Verse 10, I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded. But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. You think Paul wrote without knowing anything about what was going on in the churches of Galatia? Do you think the men that had come and told him that there were false teachers there had failed to tell him who they were? I mean, when I read the rest of the New Testament, I find him naming quite a few names of false teachers. We heard about Hymenaeus and Philetus just this morning in the reading from 2 Timothy. And notice he goes singular. He goes singular and he says in this verse, But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. Now throughout this epistle, he's referring to them in the plural. Notice verse 12. I would they were even cut off which trouble you. Notice the plural they. But for this purpose, for this verse, he wants each man that's a false teacher in those churches to be thinking that Paul knows about him and that God is going to judge him personally and individually for teaching a gospel contrary to the finished work of Jesus Christ. The Lord had given Paul assurance that these Galatians were going to be converted and he exhorted them to be converted back to the way of truth. I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded. I believe that you all are going to come right back to the gospel I once once preached to you and you're going to reject all this false teaching out of Jerusalem. But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be. I know that all you people are going to do what's right. But those false teachers that are sitting there, one by one, God's going to deal with them. Now, they had seen Paul do some pretty impressive things. Could, when, when somebody resisted Paul's gospel, could Paul say, you're going to be blind for a season, right. and men are going to lead you about? Is it, did that happen? Amen. In Acts chapter 13, Elimaeus If you gave Paul trouble, he could give you trouble. Remember that woman that cried out in the streets of Philippi? These men teach us the way of salvation. Paul commanded the spirits to come out of that girl and she didn't earn any more money for her masters because if you resisted the Apostle Paul, he was going to shut you down. And here he says, He that troubleth you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be. Did Paul ever turn other false teachers over to Satan? Yes, he did. The Bible tells us about it. Verse 11. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. 11. This is verse 11. Hold with me, because this sounds a little different. If I yet preach circumcision. Paul's wrapping up his arguments against the Judaizers. One of the final arguments he wants to take care of is the rumor being spread that Paul was actually teaching circumcision. 
Paul actually did. They, the Judaizers are telling these Galatians, we want you to know that Paul agrees with us. Paul is also teaching circumcision in order to be saved. One of the evidences that they could have had is Acts chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. When he found Timothy, he had him circumcised because of the Jews that were in that place. But when Paul had Timothy circumcised, why did he do it? In order to help Timothy get saved or to help Timothy's ministry because the Jews wouldn't have listened to him if he hadn't been circumcised. A or B? B. When Paul had Titus, that was a minister that wasn't circumcised, he wouldn't circumcise him for the same group of people, except those group of people were were demanding that Gentiles be circumcised in order to be saved, so he wouldn't circumcise Titus. Galatians chapter 2. But they did have Acts 16 that they knew. Remember something. When you don't have revelation for your truth, Revelation is when God tells you from His Word. If you don't have revelation, one of the things men do is fall back on reputation. And you know what? Reputation is an ad hominem argument. It's meaningless. Who cares who said what? Except, did God say it? All that matters is, thus saith the Lord. Who cares if Paul, who cares what Paul believed? What does the Lord say? When you don't have sufficient revelation, men fall back on reputation. Well, Dr. So-and-so believes this. Do you know how many, the most conservative pulpits in America today? Let me read what Dr. John Owen said on that subject. Well, you know what? We really don't care what Dr. John Owen said. Even if Dr. John Owen did write a wonderful book called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, and he was Oliver Cromwell's chaplain. Who cares what John Bunyan thought? Who cares what John Kelvin thought? Who cares what Charles Wesley wrote? And so they fall back on reputation when they don't have sufficient revelation. And these false teachers would use Paul because they knew the greatest reputation in the New Testament Christianity was Paul. That is why in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul said... Let no man deceive you by any means, neither by word, nor by doctrine, nor by epistle, as from us. A forged epistle in Paul's name. Don't you let any man deceive you by any means. There will be a falling away first. The man of sin will sit in the temple of God and be revealed. And not until then can Jesus Christ return. Don't let anyone deceive you, even if you get an epistle over my name. That's why he said in Galatians chapter 1 here, even if I, even if we, preach another gospel unto you, let him be accursed. Because it's not reputation that establishes truth. It's revelation. All that matters is, does God say it? What does the Bible say? I hope that you understand that point. This verse right here, 11, And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, if these men are saying that I'm on the side of circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. To claim that Jesus Christ and His cross was the only way to salvation, the Jews hated that. The Jews had to add circumcision in the law of Moses. Paul only preached one thing, got you into heaven. Jesus Christ's cross. And because of that, the Jews hated him wherever he went. If he was preaching circumcision, the offense of the cross was taken away because the Jews didn't mind. You could talk about Jesus all you wanted as long as you took Gentiles over here into the prayer closet in order to get them saved. You're all with me, aren't you? Then the offense of the cross was taken away. Paul is dealing with an argument here. If they claim that I'm on their side and that I'm preaching circumcision just because I had Timothy circumcised or for some other reason or if they're just lying and misrepresenting me, if I yet preach circumcision, why am I still suffering persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. Paul was still suffering persecution because he preached the cross only. 5.11 I would they were even cut off, which trouble you. Now, how's that for a benediction? 
It's incredible what men do with the Word of God. You know what all the church fathers say on that verse? The church fathers are so ridiculous. They said this verse means, I wish they all had the whole thing cut off. Can you believe that? Go read your Bible. We have 189 references of cut off. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How many of them do you want? 10, 15, 20 church fathers? You know, others would go into this verse and say that means I want them to be excluded. No, cut off is a little tougher than that in the Bible. When you read someone is cut off, there's usually some other words tacked onto that to help you understand it. Out of the land of the living. If you're cut off out of the land of the living, what is your next condition? Dead. I would they were even cut off that trouble you. You say, that is so harsh. Paul doesn't hate them. Paul hates their false doctrine. I mean, this isn't personal vengeance. This is protection for the glory of Jesus Christ and the protection of the churches of Jesus Christ. You say, was there death happening in the New Testament? What happened to Ananias and Sapphira? They lied to the Holy Ghost and fell down dead. Were there people that were dying in the church at Corinth for messing up the supper of the Lord Jesus Christ? Did the Lord Jesus Christ say in Revelation chapter 2, I'll take Jezebel and her children and cast them into the bed and kill them? The religion of Jesus Christ is serious. It's as serious as life and death. And these false teachers were corrupting the doctrine of Jesus Christ that Paul had taught. I would they were even cut off, which trouble you. Let's close with verse 13. It will introduce us to next Sunday. Because right there is a division. Paul ends going after the Judaizers. And now he turns to the health of these churches. Paul ended dealing with the Judaizers. And he's going to get practical like he does in all of his epistles. Verse 13. Four brethren... Ye have been called unto liberty. Isn't that how he started out in verse 1 of this chapter? 5.1 Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. For, brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. We, like Isaac, are the children of promise. We, like Isaac, are the children of the free woman. Jesus Christ has purchased for us complete freedom and liberty. That means, and we limit it to this meaning, that there is nothing that can be added to the finished work of Jesus Christ for salvation. He has saved us by Himself. But in that freedom, which means we don't have to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved, we are still supposed to live holy lives. That liberty is not liberty for our flesh to do whatever it wants. That liberty is for us to obey God without the bondage of do this, do that religion, but with Abba Father religion, do everything we can to please Him. And what does Paul bring up? He brings up, but by love serve one another. And then he is going to deal with what is the number one problem in every church, biting and devouring one another. Instead of that, we should love one another. Because if we bite and devour one another, we'll consume ourselves because a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A family can't stand. A kingdom can't stand. A nation can't stand. And a church can't stand. And so he says by love, serve one another. And so he gets very practical here. He's going to go through the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. He's going to contrast the two. And he's going to tell you, crucify all the ones in this category Put them to death, kill them, slay them, get rid of them, and do all these things by walking in the Spirit. The practical section of the book here is at the end, and he says, love one another. By love, serve one another. And so this day, as we, as we break up right now to have fellowship together, let us by love serve one another and, and so show the Spirit of God in us, bearing the fruit of love, joy, and peace. And let's put down all works of the flesh. Though Jesus Christ has made us free, 
He's made us free for righteousness. He's made us free to be servants of righteousness. He's freed us from the legal bondage of the law. And that doesn't mean that we don't keep the commandments to love of God and to love one another, even as ourselves. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.